0: We are today uh, beginning Genesis chapter 48, uh, and as I mentioned last week, we are we are right now we are in the in the middle of looking at three significant events at the end of Jacob's life. There are three things that he does at the end of his life, and last week we looked at the first of those three things. Today, we're going to begin to look at the second, and that occupies all of chapter 48. And we're going to look at the first part of that, the first seven verses or so this week, and then the remainder, Lord willing, next week. And then the third thing is uh, in chapter 49, occupies uh, all of chapter, most of chapter 49. And those three things are uh, what we talked about last week is Jacob's request that he be buried not in Egypt, but in Canaan, in the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and, and Isaac and their wives were buried, as well as Leah. Uh, and then uh, today we will begin looking at the second event, which is Jacob's adoption of and blessing of Joseph's two sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then the third event is uh, in Genesis 49 is, God, is Jacob's blessing or prophecies concerning his 12 sons. <laughs> OK, so those are those are the things we're looking at now and then uh, over the next few weeks. And then, of course, chapter 50 kind of wraps up the whole story of, of Joseph and Jacob. So um, last week we looked at verses 27 through 31 of chapter 47. So what things do you recall that stick out in your mind that we talked about last week?
1: Well, Israel property in
0: Okay. How does that why is that significant? The Egyptians were selling all the <laughs> <laughs> Egyptians were selling theirs in the and uh, the sons of Israel were buying property or acquiring property. We don't know how some of it was obviously just simply given to them, but they're acquiring property. What, do, what did we learn from that? Or what did we talk about in that regard? I made an indelible impression here, didn't I? <laughs> the okay. It's. Uh, and why was God blessing Israel? He doesn't seem to be blessing Egypt. Is he, is he uh, showing favoritism here, or is, is God a racist, <laughs> as some people suggest? Yeah. Pardon.
1: Uh, I mean, Egypt was still the place to go for food, here. the only place that had food, so he wasn't blessing Egypt. Okay,
0: okay, he certainly had blessed him. He sent him Joseph. Especially
1: as a nation, I mean, think back. This was going into
0: their probably height as a world
1: power mm-hmm. which is probably one of the
0: things that did it. Yeah. Yeah. And good. If, if the people may have been having a little bit of difficulty but the king and the guys are doing real well. Okay. Okay. Alright. Why does God bless the righteous? Because he chooses to? Okay. Is it because we're, uh, we're so good looking and, and such yeah. good people and, and so he blesses us just because
1: so
0: we can bless others, or He can bless
1: others through us. Okay, okay. But There's three
0: reasons. Go ahead. I only had two last week, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, generally speaking, so we can support our own family. Okay. That's one reason we get blessings, and, and the other is to uh, share with those who have need and i forget the third
0: one yeah that's part of it part of it is god just loves to bless his people and uh and he blesses us just because he delights in us and he loves to do so okay and that's one of the reasons he did it's one of the reasons he blessed abraham just because he just He was delighting in Abraham and he was delighting in the relationship that he had with Abraham. And so he dumps all these blessings on Abraham. But there's another reason why he blessed Abraham. And what was that? So that all the nations would be blessed blessed through him. So in reality, God's blessing of the sons of Israel in Egypt was a blessing. On the Egyptians, because it was God's way of displaying His glory and his goodness and his kindness and his mercy to the Egyptians in order that they might believe in the God of Israel. Now, whether or not they do believe that's that's another issue altogether, but but his intent and his purpose in blessing us is twofold uh, uh, the, and the first aspect of it includes all the things that that uh, Jim was mentioning. But it's just because He loves to pour on us His goodness and He wants us to delight in and relish and enjoy that goodness that He pours out on us. That's one reason. But the other reason is in order that as the world looks on and sees God's blessing on us, that they would be drawn to our God and they would be drawn to worship and serve Him. Okay?
1: Rick, you talked about this acquiring property. Uh, back up in verse 21 I don't know if that verse seems to stick out in my mind where it says that Joseph removed all the people from the cities from one end of border to the other. I don't know if you ever talked about that or if that's the significance of The significance of that is really all that or not. But I, it seems like this the fact that it's mentioned in there for some reason. I never really come up with exactly the reason unless it is that all the people, all the Egyptians now are further away from Israel and Or maybe it's also so they can get the land, acquire the land.
0: Well, actually, I didn't spend a lot of time on that verse. And, and the reason I was uh, that, that I didn't spend much time on it is uh, because actually the translation is very difficult. And we don't know if that's exactly the way it should be translated. And right off the top of my head, I forget now what the alternate translation is. It might be in one of your other translations. Uh does somebody else have another translation? verse twenty-one of chapter forty seven, uh it says in the New American it says, As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. There are some other translations of that. Does somebody else have another translation of that, verse
1: twenty
0: one? Okay. Okay. So there are a couple possible translations of that, uh, and I'm not really confident as to what I think is the correct translation, and so I didn't take a dogmatic stand on it. <laughs> so when you're on thin ice, yeah. the idea is you walk gently.
1: <laughs>
0: so. Okay, I'm is
1: that, really got where they were selling their livestock. <laughs> but that was only after...
0: Oh, that's a good point yeah <laughs> so now you have the children of Israel yeah that is an interesting connection isn't it yeah yeah the children of Israel show up and Pharaoh even says to them if you got any guys that are really good at this you know let them take care of my livestock and it's shortly after that that Pharaoh starts buying up all their livestock okay
1: now, interesting related to that. If keepers uh, of livestock are so loathsome, I kind of would have expected them not to even have any livestock. For the Egyptians, that is, that they had to have something that's
0: part of the Well, it's kind of like in uh it's kind of like in our culture. There are some jobs that are loathsome, but we still need them done. <laughs> so we still have people that collect the garbage and and do other things that we tend to think of lowly, but we need to have it done. And so it, you know, we just. Um, we're, and we're grateful that God gives us those people to do those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else from last week's lesson that sticks out to you?
1: One thing that fun is I got to do that the algebraic has been in factoring for a while. One thing that's been done
0: And did you discover anything? Well, I did
1: recognize them. Kind of did
0: they? Cool. Yeah. For those of you who weren't here, you missed out on the the, the numerical fun we had last week with the ages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
2: Yeah,
0: well, there's only one in here. That's good. There's only... Peggy raises her. Peggy too. <laughs> well, somebody explain it to, to, to Jim over here. So... Uh, but uh, so, at any rate, that was that was a fascinating thing, and and the, and the point of that is that in our lives there's a hidden pattern that of of God's working and God's plan and and our relationship with other people and how all those things dovetail together, and oftentimes that's hidden to us, that's concealed from us. We don't really see it uh, until maybe sometime later in our life or maybe even you know by the, you know after we're on the other side of the river that ultimately we see how god was working in the pattern that underlies uh our lives and our existence and and that was that was the lesson of that one of the things we did talk about last week and we'll talk more about it today is that each one of these three events the one we looked at last week the one we'll look at over the next couple of weeks and then chapter 49 that each one of these three events uh, reveals to us the faith of Jacob at the end of his life. And that's very clearly the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews draws from these events. And he refers to two out of the three of them when he refers to the faith of Jacob as he lists him there in chapter 11 of Hebrews in that great uh, uh, hall of Fame of Faith, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 11, and he talks about Jacob, and he speaks about these two events. He speaks are two of these three events. He speaks about his blessing of his sons, and he speaks about uh, this event with Joseph, where he he asked to be buried uh, in Egypt, or excuse me, in Canaan. And and to the writer of Hebrews, this is a these are classic illustrations of the faith of the patriarch Jacob. And uh, and as we'll think about some more today as we go forward, uh, Jacob is a guy who didn't start out very well. But what is really encouraging is to see how he finishes here at the end of his life. And what we see is a man who is, as we will see today, is speaking not only from faith, but is actually speaking prophetically. And that will become even more obvious when we get into chapter 49, how Jacob is now speaking as a prophet. And uh, and so there's a tremendous growth or transition that's taken place in the life of Jacob. And these passages that we're looking at over these few weeks are illustrative of that faith. And so that's one of the things we talked about. Well, today we're going to pick up in chapter 48. And let's start in verse 1 and we'll just read down through verse 7. Uh, Chapter 48 uh, can be broken into kind of two parts in regard to the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, the first part, verses 1 through 7, has to do with Jacob's adoption of Joseph's sons as his own sons. Okay, And that's what we're going to read about and study today. And then beginning in verse 8, it kind of depends on where you want to break it, and I chose to break it at verse 8. But beginning in verse 8 and then uh, down through the rest of the chapter is Jacob's blessing on these two sons whom he has just adopted, Manasseh and Ephraim. So that's kind of the breakdown of the chapter. And we want to look at the first part of that, the, the adoption itself in verses 1 through 7. So he says, now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And it was told to Jacob, when it was told to Jacob, behold your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and he said to me, behold I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, That is Bethlehem, the narrator adds there at the end. So we have this story, uh, uh, the second of these three narratives that we're talking about. And uh, as, as you read through the story, it, the verses that we looked at, it kind of seems kind of random. He, you know, Jacob's sick, and Joseph comes to visit him, and and he, and then he kind of talks about God blessing him at Luz, which is Bethel. and uh, and 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 then he. Then he adopts the sons, and then he starts talking about rachel dying and And when you read it, it kind of seems like just the ramblings of an old man,
1: <laughs>
0: but that is emphatically not what it is okay This is not just some old man just randomly reminiscing about the past and This is not just some old dying man thinking hopefully. I uh, hope things work out for my descendants. This is this is a story of a prophet speaking confidently of the future and laying out the authority by which he speaks. And also what we see is is the is the whole scenario is 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 kind of it unfolds basically as somewhat of a legal formula, okay? So there's something very profound, very significant, and very legal, if we can use that term, that's taking place in this passage. So we shouldn't just read this passage and just think, okay, Jacob's kind of fading off the scene here, and, you know, maybe a little Alzheimer's or dementia's kicked in here, and he's just remembering the old times and that sort of thing. That is not what's going on here. So we have the scene where Jacob, Joseph hears word that his father is sick. And it, it seems to me, we can't say this emphatically, but it seems that this, message, this word has been sent to Joseph with the intention of having him come to see his father. Whether or not that's the case is not explicitly clear, but it seems somewhat implied that this word has been sent to Joseph because it's assumed that Joseph will want to see his father before he dies. Okay. And, and and of course, it, in, in the way verse one is written, uh, it says there at the end. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim with him. In other words, they're assuming he's going to go. The assumption is Joseph is going to go see his father because his father is sick with the implication that this is this is approaching the end. So we are probably close to the very end of Jacob's life here. The exact time is not clear, but it does appear from the first of the verse there that this is some time after Jacob asked to be buried in Canaan. So this is some time, uh, some period of time has elapsed since the request that he made in those verses that we looked at last week. But he now is nearing death, and the message is taken to his son Joseph, who's presumably off, busy doing the work of the kingdom of Egypt. Uh, he's sent message to his, had message sent to his son that he's sick and it's not clear how much longer he's going to live. And so Joseph takes his two sons and it's not clear again in the text here whether or not he has any more children. It seems at this point that he doesn't, but it's not exactly clear. Uh, So he he takes his two sons or his two eldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Manasseh the firstborn and Ephraim the second son. And he takes them with him to go see their grandfather, to see his father and their grandfather. And then when it's verse 2 when it's told to Jacob that Joseph has arrived what does Jacob do? Before that Don't forget that point by the way but before that when he first hears that Joseph has arrived, what does he do?
1: He
0: gathers, gathers himself up and he sits up in his bed. Okay. Now um, again it's very easy to kind of just kind of read through these things and ignore them. But here's a guy who is very sick. He doesn't sit up easily, obviously. <laughs> okay? You've probably seen people like this. Maybe you've been like this at times. I don't know. But here's a man who is very sick. To sit up in bed is a chore. Okay. But when he hears that Joseph has arrived, he's not simply just lying there in bed as a dying man waiting for people to come and say goodbye to him. Jacob... When he hears that Joseph has arrived. To use a biblical term. girds himself up for the work he has to do. Jacob has something he needs to do. This is an important thing. And it's not something you do laying on your back. Okay. He has an important work to do. He has a spiritual work to do. Because he is going to. He is going to take the blessing that has been bestowed upon him by El Shaddai. He is going to take that blessing and he is going to begin now to distribute that blessing to his descendants. To Joseph, to Joseph's sons, to his own twelve sons. He's going to begin to distribute these blessings. This is a spiritual work and he can't do it on his back. And so what we see Jacob doing, as sick as he is, as frail as he is at this point in his life, is he musters all the strength that he can simply to sit up so that he can be in the proper position to do this spiritual work of blessing and prophecy that he's going to engage in. And and as I was meditating on that and thinking about that over the last few days I was I, I I was just thinking how Jacob is a is an illustration to us or or a demonstration to us of what God is calling us to do because all of us in one sense or another are like Jacob, right? We are frail. We are weak. We we just we're possessed with human frailty. And and we, we are keenly, most of us, I think, are keenly aware of the weaknesses and the inadequacies of our life. And when I think about that, I think about people in the Old Testament who felt that way. We can think of Moses when God appears to him at the burning bush and says... I've got this little job for you. I want you to go back to Egypt and mobilize two million people and lead them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land. And Moses' response was, hey, I can do that, right? Now, he goes, oh, this, you got the wrong man here, Lord. you got the wrong man here. I can't speak. I'm tongue-tied. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do this thing. Or I think of Isaiah when God comes to Isaiah and he's he's looking for a man to speak his word to a disobedient people. And Isaiah's response is, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm a man with an unclean tongue. And he's keenly aware of his inadequacies. And oftentimes when God comes to us and begins to impress on us by his Holy Spirit that he's got something for us to do, What is our immediate response oftentimes? Oftentimes, if not always, (laughs) certainly the majority of times we look to our inadequacies, right? We think about our frailties and we think about our weaknesses. But when God is beginning to impress upon you that there's something for you to do, that is the time for you to collect your strength and sit up on your bed. It's a time when when you go, okay, God, this is a job you've given me to do. You're impressing this upon me. And I am weak and I am frail and I am sickly like Jacob. But if this is a job you've given me to do, then I am going to collect all the strength and will and determination that I can muster and I'm going to sit up and I'm going to do this thing that you have given me to do. Now, uh, when, uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, We already picked this thought up here. What what does he call him here? When he talks about him picking himself up. He calls him Israel. Now, I want you to notice that in... uh, in verse 2, at the beginning of the verse, it calls him what? Excuse me? Jacob. Okay. Then at the in the middle of the verse, it calls him Israel. Then at the beginning of the next verse, it calls him what? Jacob. Okay. So, so it seems that the narrator goes out of his way at this point when he refers to To Israel, picking himself up, he goes out of his way to call him Israel. What is the significance of that? Everywhere else in this passage, he refers to him as Jacob, but at this point, when he refers to him collecting his strength and sitting up in bed, he calls him Israel. God is
1: calling Israel back
0: to God. Okay, okay. In fact, he is about to recall. For Joseph, his own experience at Luz, at Bethel, in which God calls him Israel, names him Israel. Okay, so so there's so the narrator is drawing a connection between this experience at Luz and the things that Jacob is about to do with Joseph's sons. There's a direct connection here. So, as I said, this is not just the ramblings of an old man, and he's kind of reminiscing back, and then he kind of you know, back and forth all over the place. But here's a guy who is thinking very clearly, God has named me Israel. When he named me Israel, he made these promises to me, and he gave me the authority by which I am about to act now on behalf of Joseph's sons. So, so when this man is collecting himself, <laughs> it's this it's this man who is blessed of God, who is equipped of God, who is blessed of God. So it's not it's not just the natural man Jacob here who is acting. But it is the spiritual man, Isaiah uh uh Israel it's the spiritual man Israel who's acting who now collects all his physical faculties if you will to employ all of his remaining physical faculties in doing the spiritual work that God has given him to do so when God is calling us to act he's calling the Israel in us to act right He's not calling us to act in the flesh. So when I'm speaking of corralling our physical resources, I'm not suggesting that we are doing the work of God in the flesh. But we cannot do the work of the God without employing the bodies that He has given to us, right? The arms, the legs, the voices of the mind that God has given to us. Go ahead.
1: Well, that tension... Uh, I find throughout the Christian life that tension between getting our strength to do the thing that God gives us to do in His strength, mm-hmm. and the, the fight between those two things, and not let, let the one get in the way of the other, and it just goes on and on and on through all different realms. Yeah, yeah. That's a real tough one. It
0: is a tough one. It is a tough one, and one that Jacob has not always done well, yeah. as we'll see as we go on today. So he's not always done it well. Uh, but thankfully uh, there's hope for us Jacob by the end of his life is beginning to learn and he's learning that he can speak in faith he can speak in the power of God based on the word of God and the promise of God but it's still going to take him sitting up in bed to do it, and he's going to do that. You have something, Mike. You look like you're ready to say something. As we
1: get older, maybe here he has no choice. He didn't have any strength left in
0: Well, that's a good point. But we do have a choice, and the choice is not to do anything. Unfortunately, isn't it? So as we as we become more acutely aware of our inadequacies and of our frailties and our weaknesses, and God says, here's a job for you to do, and we go, Lord, you know, I can't do this because I don't have the wherewithal to do this. Oftentimes, we ought not to do anything. And thankfully, Jacob did not opt at this point to do anything. He collected what strength he had, and then he spoke.
1: Okay? When well, I think through that, that struggle... You said one of the key things yeah. there. You acted by faith. Yes. Um, to me, that is the the way you get past that.
0: Yeah. Doesn't mean you're always going to do it right, but by faith you take action based yeah. on what God's showing you to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and actually, when I when I think about that, I think about something that Paul said. When he says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. Paul is acutely aware of the fact that he has a spiritual task to do and that his body just really doesn't want to go along with this. (laughs) And so he says, in order to do the thing that God has called me to do, he says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. And that's what I see Jacob doing here. (laughs) Jacob is buffeting his body. He's making it his slave. He corrals all the strength that he has which is very little, just enough to sit up in bed. And he sits up in bed and then he speaks.
1: Joseph uh, ever know, I don't remember, do you ever know the name
0: of David? Well, I assume that he did by this point, but it doesn't ever tell us. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I should say, it doesn't tell us, but we have to remember that Joseph still lived with his father in Canaan for several years after the name change. So presumably, yes, he knew. Well, so now Jacob is sitting up in bed and he begins to speak and he begins to tell in, in speaking in getting to what he wants to do. He begins to tell a story. And what is the story that he begins to tell? Okay, of this encounter that he had with God. Okay, and where was this encounter? Excuse me, at Luz or Luz. Okay, and and so wh- where is that? Canaan. Pardon, it's in Canaan. Yes, but specifically, how do we more commonly know of it? Bethel. Bethel. Okay. It's it's the place that was known within the culture and within society as Luz or Laz, but to Jacob it is known as Bethel, the house of God. Okay? Why is it known to Jacob as the house of God? Because it was
2: where God spoke to
0: him. Okay. It's where he twice encountered God. He encountered God there as he was leaving from Canaan to go to Paden Aaron as a fugitive and he encounters God there and he becomes a pilgrim, as we said, uh, there at Bethel. And then on his return, after he's had his encounter with uh, with Esau on his return from Payneering 20 years later, uh, he has his encounter with Esau. He goes to Shechem. He spends some time there. has a total disaster there. And then God says to them, then I, I want you to go to Bethel. And so he goes to Bethel or he goes to Luz or Luz. Okay. So he goes to Luz. And, and, he, and he has this second encounter with God. And it's this second encounter with God that he is describing here in Genesis 48. Okay. The, first encounter, or the second encounter that he had is described for us in Genesis chapter 35. And you might just kind of flip over there, stick your finger there in Genesis 35, because we're going to kind of want to look at that just a little bit here in a minute. But first, let's look at Jacob's recollection of that event. And as he recalls that event here in chapter forty-eight, who does he say spoke to him? God Almighty. God Almighty. Okay, it's the name El Shaddai. Okay, the Almighty God. Okay, this is the one who spoke to me. Now the reason Jacob, as he recalls this event and recollects it for uh, for his son Joseph, the The reason he refers to God here, not by his his covenant name of Yahweh, but by the name of El Shaddai, is because that's how God identified himself at that second encounter at Bethel. God identified himself to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So this is the one who spoke to him. And the significance of that, of course, is obvious. That God is about to tell Jacob there at, at Luz. He's about to tell him of all these impossible things he's going to do. And if he's going to do all these things, it's going to have to be the almighty God. It's not, you know, it can't be one of the gods of the Canaanites. You know, they're kind of provincial. They work here, but they don't work over there. Okay, <laughs> and, 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 and they are in competition with the other gods. But the God who is speaking to you, Jacob, is the God above all gods. He is the Almighty God, and the things that I am about to describe to you, that I am going to do, are completely within my prerogative and my power to do. I am the Almighty God. So he calls him the Almighty God, and then and then what does he recall that God promised him? That you will be fruitful. That you will be numerous and then what? What's next? A company of peoples and then what's next? The land, land, okay. That I'll give the land to your descendants. (coughs) As a what? Everlasting Everlasting possession, okay. So there are basically two parts of the promise that Jacob is recalling for Joseph here. And they are the promises regarding the descendants. And there are three specific promises regarding the descendants. That you will be fruitful. That you will be numerous or multiply. And third, that you will be a company of nations. His promise to Jacob, first of all, is fruitfulness. You're going to have a lot of kids. Okay. You're going to have a lot of kids. Okay, But he says, you're going to have a lot of kids and... And then the significance of, of that "Be fruitful and multiply," that phrase that always kind of goes together there, "Be fruitful and multiply." OK is not just that they're going to be fruitful, but that they are also going to what? Ultimately, what? They will turn be uh, OK, OK. So they're going to in turn be fruitful, and the end result will be
1: Not just. Attitude.
0: Okay. They're not just going to be adding a few, okay. You can be fruitful. But there can be a high attrition rate and, and so you never really become numerous, right? But God's promise is not only that they're going to be fruitful, but that He's going to preserve that fruit so the fruit multiplies upon itself and they become more and more numerous. So there's going to be many of them. You're going to be very fruitful and, you're going to, and, and this fruitfulness is going to, is going to endure. It's going to, uh, it's going to multiply upon itself until you become a great number of people. But you can have a great number of people who are just scattered all over and are not connected to one another, right? But what is his promise to Jacob? They will be what? A company of nations. In other words, you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply. But not only that, but there's going to be a a cohesiveness to you. Even in your vast numbers, there's going to be a cohesiveness to you. And this is the nature of the promise of descendants that God gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. That they would be fruitful, that that fruitfulness would endure until it multiplied upon itself and they became a great number. But not only that they would become a great number, but that they would have ultimately in the end, even with their great number, they would have a cohesive identity. Now... Those who are reaching grandparent age begin to understand that, right? Because you want your children not only to have children and their children to have children, but you, all, you want them to all stay connected, right? You all want to, you know, uh, two of my daughter, one of my daughters drove an hour and a half yesterday just so she could spend a few hours with my other daughter, you know? Well, you know, I'm sorry, but I kind of think that's cool. That's neat. I want to see my descendants cohesive. And identified together. And that is the promise that God makes, not only for Jacob and for Jacob's sons and for Jacob's grandsons, but for their descendants for generation after generation after generation after generation. It is no small miracle that the nation of Israel is still identified today as the people of Abraham. How many people groups can you look to today? who can trace their identity back 4,000 years to their first grandfather. That is a miracle. That is the work that God did with the children of Israel, that we still identify those people physically, identify those people today as the descendants of Abraham. A cohesive identity simply by the miraculous power of El Shaddai. Well, so so these are the themes that come out as Jacob tells this story to uh, to Joseph. But now I want you to keep your finger in chapter 48 and flip over to chapter 45. okay? and let's read what let's read the story as the narrator first tells it, because there are at least three interesting changes of nuance. In the way that Jacob tells the story, from the way the narrator first relates the story. And I think those are instructive to us about Jacob's frame of mind as he is sitting there on his deathbed. Okay? So in chapter 35, and beginning in verse 9, it says Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And we've talked about that already. Okay. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Okay. So this is the event as the narrator first describes it. Now the question is, how does Jacob perceive what God said to him? And to some degree, certainly here at the end of his life, he tells the story a little differently. Not Contradicting what was said, but he tells it a little differently. What are see if you can see what are some of the distinctions between what God is said to have said in chapter 35 and what Jacob is recalling for Joseph in chapter 48? You might have to put your thinking caps on. Some of these are pretty subtle.
1: Well, the first one—I don't know if this is what you're talking about. The first one I saw was he said, "Be fruitful and multiply." And when Jacob is recalling, he says, "I will make you fruitful."
0: Okay, okay, that actually is one. Uh, I guess Very good, very good. In chapter thirty-five, in chapter thirty-five, it's in the imperative mood. In chapter 48, it's not. Okay, that's one. We'll come back to that in a second. Do you see any others?
1: The uh, duration in 35, it says, I'll give you the land. Here he's saying, I'm going to have the land
0: forever. Okay, okay. So, when Jacob tells the story, he says it's an everlasting possession. And that's not exactly what God said to him. In chapter thirty-five. Okay, so that you're good, good, you're doing good. You got two out of three. The third one's a little more conspicuous, but you may miss it. But it's a little more conspicuous. And I'll give you a hint. It's something that Jacob leaves out. It's about the kings. Okay, that God made him a promise that we kings would come forth from his loin. and he doesn't say anything about that to Joseph. Okay, so these are three things that that I believe. Tell us something about jacob's frame of mind here as he 's sitting on his deathbed, and the first is the point that Jim pointed out is that in chapter thirty five it 's in the imperative mood imperative mood means a command okay so when we say something's a, an imperative it's a command it 's something we have to do okay and so in in languages like in English, we have what we call the imperative mood which is which is the way we say things when we 're Telling somebody to do something. okay. And in chapter 35. It's in the imperative mood. But in chapter 30. In chapter 48. As Joseph is recalling or Jacob is recalling this. He doesn't recall it as an imperative. But he recalls it as what? He recalls it as a promise. It's a it's a promise of the future. Okay, now, when God spoke it in the imperative mood, he he didn't intend it there as a command, but it's put in the imperative mood in chapter thirty five in order to emphasize the certainty of the promise. Okay, so in that case, the imperative mood is being used to communicate the absolute certainty with which this is going to happen. Okay, so it's not it's not in chapter thirty five that God is commanding him to do this, but rather that he is assuring him that this will happen. But what Jacob understands from that is it's not something he's going to do. It's something God is going to do. That God will make him fruitful. So, what we see here in in Jacob, sitting there on his deathbed, is a man who is radically changed from the Jacob of old, right? Right? Because in the Jacob of old, what did we have? We had a guy who from before he was born had a promise from God that the birthright and the inheritance would be his. He had that promise from God before he was born. But as a young man, he felt compelled to manipulate things in order to accomplish what God had promised. This goes back to this tension we were talking about a few minutes ago. And so Jacob is this manipulator, this supplanter, who even though he has the promise of God, is not confident that God can do this. And so he has to do it himself. And But what we have now with Jacob at the end is he recognizes that when God said, be fruitful and multiply, what God was really saying was, I am absolutely going to do this on your behalf. Jacob has changed. He's a different guy. So, so that's the first thing. Uh, what was the second one? Okay, he left out the king. Now, this is interesting, and we'll get into more of this next week. But why does he not make a reference to the kings when he's talking about this whole blessing of God that he's now going to bestow on the sons of Joseph? Doesn't need to cry him kind of under
1: Pharaoh.
0: Well, okay. The, the, okay. the kings are not going to come from Joseph. The kings are not going to come. Well, we should say the right king is not going to come from, from Manasseh or Ephraim. Actually, Jeroboam is an Ephraimite. But Jeroboam is a pretender to the throne. Okay? So, but the legitimate king is going to come from Judah. He's going to come from a son of Leah. Next week, we'll talk some about this conflict between the sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel and this conflict between the kings, uh, of, the, uh, kings of the northern and southern kingdom. And hopefully, we'll be able to talk a little bit about that next week. But so, he, so Joseph, Jacob here, speaking prophetically, he acknowledges and he knows even though he's about to give Joseph the birthright. Because he's about to give Joseph the double blessing. So he's about to give Joseph the birthright. But even though he's about to give Joseph the birthright, he acknowledges, he knows that ultimately the ruler of Israel will be from Judah. Which people make clear when we get to chapter 49. So, we, so what we see so clearly here at this point with Jacob is that he really is speaking prophetically. He really does have some spiritual insight of the future. And he recognizes that although he's going to give a double portion of the inheritance to his son, Joseph. That ultimately, the real rule will go to a son of Leah. It will go to Judah. OK. And so this thing about the kings is left out. And then what was the third thing? Party. The everlasting covenant. Now, he doesn't. He, when, he, when he talks about the land, he says, the land will be given to, to my descendants after me as an everlasting covenant. But as we saw in chapter 35, God didn't use that phrase. He, he said it would be given to your descendants, but he didn't make that promise of the everlasting covenant. Where does Jacob get that? Okay? God? Yeah. Yeah. God had given that promise to Abraham twice in chapter 15 and in chapter 17. God had twice promised Abraham that the land would be given as an everlasting possession. And so Jacob is just simply recognizing that that what God was saying to him was just part of what of the promise that God had made to his fathers before him. And so that, so that he's, he, is, he is simply extrapolating from the promise made to his grandfather Abraham that this promise of land which is given to him is the same promise that was given to his father. And so he's identifying here that, that this thing that God is doing in me is not just about me. It's about my father and my grandfather before me. And so God's word to Jacob stands in a context of God's word to Isaac and Abraham. Just as God's word to us today stands in a historical context of God's word to his people before us. It's very easy for us. You know, we we're, we're, we're born into this very contemporary world and and we think very contemporary we think very modern and at some point in our lives we get convicted of sin and drawn to Christ and we come to Christ and we commit our lives to Christ and and we tend to see our experience with God as very much about us now okay and and what what we need to understand is that it's not just about us but it's about this whole thing that God is doing and and I am only a part of this whole thing that God is doing. And so so Jacob recognizes that that the promise that God made to him is just part of this bigger picture. And so and so he gets to be part of a bigger picture. And part of that bigger picture is this everlasting nature of the covenant, the everlasting nature of the promise of this land. Well, so, then he goes on to adopt his sons. I'm out of time. My, I had my watch hidden back here and I haven't seen the time. So, I'm out of time. So, we're going to pick up right here where we where we are right now. We're going to pick this up and next week we'll look at this and we'll look and his blessing in the remainder of the chapter. You all are laughing. You don't think we'll get it done. But you just watch. You'll see. So so next week we'll pick up right here about Jacob's adoption of his sons. Thanks. <laughs>